And we'll continue in our exposition of this book concerning the prophet Jonah. And I'm going to read along in chapter 1. Now the word of the Lord came to Jonah, the son of Amittai, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it, for their evil has come up before me. But Jonah rose to flee to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. He went down to Joppa and found a ship going to Tarshish. So he paid the fare and went down into it to go with them to Tarshish, away from the presence of the Lord. But the Lord hurled a great wind upon the sea, and there was a mighty tempest on the sea so that the ship threatened to break up. Then the mariners were afraid, and each cried out to his God, And they hurled the cargo that was in the ship into the sea to lighten it for them. But Jonah had gone down into the inner part of the ship and had laid down and was fast asleep. So the captain came and said to him, What do you mean, you sleeper? Arise, call out to your God. Perhaps the God will give a thought to us that we may not perish. And they said to one another, Come, let us cast lots that we may know on whose account this evil has come upon us. So they cast lots, and the lot fell on Jonah. Then they said to him, Tell us on whose account this evil has come upon us. What is your occupation, and where do you come from? What is your country, and what people are you? And he said to them, I am a Hebrew, and I fear the Lord, the God of heaven, who made the sea and the dry land. Then the men were exceedingly afraid and said to him, What is this that you have done? For the men knew that he was fleeing from the presence of the Lord, because he had told them. Then they said to him, What shall we do to you that the sea may quiet down for us? For the sea grew more and more tempestuous. He said to them, Pick me up and hurl me into the sea. Then the sea will quiet down for you. For I know it is because of me that this great tempest has come upon you. Nevertheless, the men rode hard to get back to dry land. But they could not, for the sea grew more and more tempestuous against them. Therefore they called out to the Lord, O Lord, let us not perish for this man's life, and lay not on us innocent blood. For you, O Lord, have done as it pleased you. So they picked up Jonah and hurled him into the sea. And the sea ceased from its raging. Then the men feared the Lord exceedingly. And they offered a sacrifice to the Lord and made vows. And the Lord appointed a great fish to swallow up Jonah. And Jonah was in the belly of the fish three days and three nights. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this account in the life of Jonah. But... More importantly, that you used him and even his disobedience to bring people to faith, to show your glory, your omnipotence, your providence, your sovereignty, your compassion, your mercy. And that we have this story to teach us, to reflect upon, to learn from. So, Lord, as we look now into your word, 
We pray that you would teach us, that you would help us, that you would open our ears to hear and our eyes to see, and that you would speak through me for the sake of your people and for your glory. In Christ's name we pray, amen. So I was reading this account of the storm that the Lord hurled against Jonah, it, it made me think of the fact that, you know, most, most conversion stories begin with a trial or a crisis. And usually that trial or crisis is, is of the person's own doing, their own sinful choices and their rebellion against God. And, um, but sometimes there's those testimonies where um, the person has been placed in a significant trial, in uh, some sort of crisis that is um, beyond their own power. And they realize the lack of their own power and ability to change things. And so God uses that to draw them to faith. And that that may be a natural disaster or a a tragedy involving um, great violence or gross sin. It it may be a war uh, or a survival situation. I think of my own testimony. I think of others, other people I know and their testimonies and Many of them start with some crisis or trial. And yet, even looking at my own testimony and those of others, um, for any, every one of those significant and trying circumstances in what, which God uses to draw people to himself, there are also those going through the same circumstances who remain undeterred and hardened in their sins. It seems that for many of those circumstances that God sees fit just to pluck one or two out of the fire and the rest remain undeterred. And it reminds me of you know, my experiences as a believer in the military and, and uh, my second deployment and the responses I would hear from others regarding gospel opportunities during a deployment. They'd say, well, you know, I, I'm sure... Many of the soldiers or many uh, of the service members or even the um, foreign nationals you meet there would be open to the gospel. They're in this crisis, this trial that they forces them to reflect upon their life and, and how they're living and, and, and just the nature of life, the meaning of life, why these things happen, the, the problem of evil. And yet in... The, in those times, in those experiences that I've had overseas, I've seen many people, many soldiers who remained hardened in their sins. Some, some that have been on multiple deployments, very dangerous situations, and have heard the gospel several times from others and have just remained hardened. I, I've seen the same thing in, in, in my experiences as a hospice chaplain, where People that I've talked to in church would say, wow, you, you, know, you minister as a hospice chaplain. There must be gospel opportunities. And, and there are, but it's not, it's not all the time. And, and most of the people you talk to, they remain hardened in their sin. They're, they're on death's door or, 
uh, the loved ones and the family members and friends, they, they, they see that person that they're just days away from death, away from stepping into eternity, and, and they themselves think that they have months and years and decades to live when that's not the case. And you see, see people that, I remember one man that I went to talk to, and he was overly optimistic. <laughs> he thought he was going to get better, and everything around him is, he had some sort of throat cancer, and he could barely talk, and, and he just felt that everything was going to get better. Uh, another man has some sort of heart disease, and, and he thought that in his 80s, and he thought that he was going to recover, he was exercising, thought that it was somehow going to go away. <laughs> and every time I try to talk about religious matters or spiritual things or the gospel, he would shut down the conversation and overly optimistic when he shouldn't have been. And, you know, God places trials in our lives, places us in circumstances to get our attention. But there's also those people that are placed in those circumstances and trials that they remain undeterred. Seems like nothing can awaken them. Nothing can shake them out of their disobedience and their rebellion. And there is a sense that Jonah is in a similar situation, and yet, being a prophet called by God, God will not leave him alone. The, the hound of heaven will hunt him down. And so here, as Jonah rebels from the clear calling of God and, and tries to, to run away, God hurls upon him a storm. And it's not just a storm, but there's several things through this account in which God confronts Jonah's disobedience to his calling and is carrying out his divine discipline upon Jonah to bring him to repentance. And in looking at this part of the story, at this narrative, we see, we see that God employs four instruments of his discipline to bring Jonah to repentance. Four instruments of divine discipline. And, and it's not just that the instruments God uses to bring Jonah to repentance, but it's the order in which he uses them. So four instruments of divine discipline. First and foremost is the storm. The storm, verses 4 to 5. But the Lord hurled a great wind upon the sea, and there was a mighty tempest on the sea, so that the ship threatened to break up. It hurled, it, it, it's as if he took his arm and threw the storm against Jonah, against the ship, against the sailors. And, and there's, there's three effects this, this instrument of divine discipline produced, or, or more accurately, three things which this storm had effects upon. First and foremost, the effects on the ship. We read here that the ship itself threatened to break up. 
and, and that, that's a pretty accurate translation, that, that verb threatened, because it, it's almost as if the ship itself was speaking, as if the ship itself was, was animated. This is an anthropomorphism, a, 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 a term or a, or a concept in Scripture in which an inanimate object is taking on human characteristics or shows human characteristics, or, and it may not be that the ship itself was, was doing anything um, miraculous, as if like Balaam and his donkey, in which the donkey speaks. But there is a sense that the tempest, the, the storm, was such that the ship may have been groaning. Those planks on the ship may have been creaking and, and splintering and cracking in such a way that the ship itself, the ship itself was groaning and, and, and threatening to just burst apart. The, the ship itself wanted to give in. The ship itself wanted to quit. And it's almost as if the ship was repenting. The ship said, I, I'm not sailing anymore. I'm not going anymore. I, I'm about to give up. Give up. I'm, a, I'm just going to quit. I give in. I'm not moving anymore. And, and, and as, as God hurls this storm, as God employs his discipline upon Jonah, it, it, it's interesting because almost everything within the narrative responds positively towards God's actions than Jonah does. And so the, his first instrument of discipline is a storm. And the first effect is on the ship. The second effect is on the sailors. The sailors respond towards the storm. They respond first and foremost in, in that they cry out to their gods, to their false gods, to to something outside of themselves. And, and who knows if they had any idols with them. Um, certainly they were idolaters because it, it talks about hit their gods as their false gods. And so maybe they had figurines with them. Maybe they had idols. Um, sometimes in those days there was an idol um, built into the ship itself. But they know that this storm, this situation that they're in is beyond their power to escape. And so they, they cry out to their gods. But then, when that doesn't work, they act shrewdly to sacrifice the cargo. They're, they're hurling the cargo from the ship out into the sea to lighten it. And, and that cargo is, that's why they're there. That's why they're on the sea is to transport cargo to make money that was their livelihood that's the whole reason for their journey and yet they have in a sense almost could use the term abandoned ship but they give up the reason for why they're on the journey just to just to survive so the storm is is having positive effects on the ship and the sailors, so to speak. Positive in the sense that it, it, it's 
impacting them to where that they are acting upon this storm. So there's a effects on the ship, the effects on the sailors, but then the effects on Jonah. And, and the effects on Jonah are not are not positive. They're they're negative because what does what does Jonah do? The ship threatens to break up. The, the sailors are afraid. They cry out to their God. They sacrifice the cargo. But in verse 5, it says, Jonah had gone down into the inner part of the ship and had lain down and was fast asleep. It, it, it's interesting because here we have these sailors who are certainly more experienced than Jonah. We don't know if Jonah had any sailing experience, but they're fearful enough to pray to their false gods and to sacrifice the cargo. And yet Jonah goes down into the belly of the ship and he falls asleep, fast asleep. And so the effects that this storm has on Jonah is one of avoidance. And escape. Avoidance and escape from the reminder of his sin and the effects his sin had produced. His sin is, because of his sin, it's having consequences on this ship and on these sailors around him. And yet, he goes down into the belly of the ship to avoid the storm, to avoid the sailors, to escape from any reminder of his sin. That he had caused this. And it's interesting because avoidance and escape, that's, that's our first reaction towards our sin, towards the confrontation of our sin. When, when we are confronted with our sin or the effects that our sin has had on others, uh, our, our first reaction is to run and hide. Is to avoid it. And this is, this is a part of our sin nature. Because this is exactly what Adam and Eve did. It's exactly what they did when they sinned. They hid from the presence of the Lord. And this is what we do. It's what children do when we call upon them. Did you do such and such? Did you take that toy? Did you take that treat that you weren't supposed to have? They run and hide. And we run and hide, but... As we grow older, and we're no longer children or toddlers, we're a bit more, um, we're better at running and hiding. We have more um, sophisticated ways of running and hiding, of avoiding and escaping. And for many unbelievers, they, they may escape to alcohol or drugs to avoid their sin and the consequences of their sin, the effects their sin has had on other people. They, they may escape into food. They may escape into TV and movies, entertainment. They may escape to vacations. They may even escape to another city, another community, to move away from that person or their family or their uh, parents or someone that, they need to reconcile with or a little bit closer home might move to another church, might decide to go to another 
service. And this happens more often in, in the larger churches. People with relationship problems that are unwilling to reconcile with somebody else. They may, you know, the church has multiple services. There's hundreds of people here. I'll just go to another service. I'll sit on the other side of the sanctuary. Avoidance and escape. But that avoidance and escape from sin and the consequences of, of sin and the refusal to repent and to deal with sin, that, that leads to something even worse. That, that can leave, lead to apathy. Avoidance and escape leads to apathy. That, and we see this in, in Jonah, that he's, he's able to fall fast asleep in this, the middle of this storm. He doesn't care. I just don't care anymore. And I don't care if anyone else cares. Jonah, he not only didn't care about the storm, he didn't care about the sailors who were going through the storm and were sacrificing their livelihood to survive the storm. He, was, he didn't even want to help them. He didn't want to see their fearful response. He didn't care. And he didn't care about them. So, the first instrument God uses to discipline Jonah is this storm. And the second is the sailors. The sailors. Because he sends a storm, it affects the ship, and then it has a great effect on the sailors. And it's the sailors who, as we see, were more experienced. They were professional sailors more experienced with storms than Jonah, and yet they were fearful, and they were responding towards this storm, and, and yet Jonah wasn't. And, and, and it should have been their natural response towards this storm that should have pricked the conscience of Jonah. This is... And this is this. That's why I said earlier that it's not just the instruments of divine discipline which which God employs, but it's their order. That first He sends a storm. It threatens to the ship itself threatens to break up. The sailors are responding, and as the sailors respond, they respond in in three ways. First, their fearful response, and all of this should have been. It should have been haunting Jonah's conscience. It should have been pricking him. It should have been provoking him to repent. But we see that the sailors throughout this, this narrative in this chapter, they have a, a fearful response. First, their fearful response is to endure the storm in verse 5. They were afraid and they cried out to their gods. And then they probably did what they heard other sailors do in the same situation. And perhaps there were some sailors there who had been through storms before and done the same thing. And so they figure, okay, we'll throw the cargo into the sea. We'll lighten it and perhaps we can endure this storm. But that doesn't work. And so later on, as we look down, their, their second fearful response is to escape the storm. As we go down, we look 
in verse 13, it, it says after their interaction, their dialogue with Jonah, it says that the men rode hard to get back to dry land, but they could not for the sea grew more and more tempestuous against them. So first, their response is to endure the storm. Second, to escape the storm. And then third, to entreat the Lord. Finally, they, in verse 14, they called out to the Lord and said, O Lord, let us not perish for this man's life and lay not on us innocent blood. For you, O Lord, have done as it pleased you. It's interesting that man's natural and sinful response towards difficulty and trials is to go to the Lord last. He's usually our, our, our last uh, recourse, our our last um, refuge when, in fact, we should go to him first. But, however, it, as we see, um, there's something more with the sailors' response is not only did they go to the Lord last when they should have gone to him first, but they also did not listen to the man of God either. They, they had not listened to the man of God until they went to the Lord, until they, they tried everything else, and then they remember, oh yeah, he told us to throw him into the sea. So they picked up Jonah and hurled him into the sea, and the sea ceased from its raging. And this is, this is interesting. There's, there's something to learn from this, that first they try to endure the storm, then they try to escape the storm. Then finally they entreat the Lord. But before they entreated the Lord, the man of God, Jonah, even though he was disobedient, he told them exactly what they needed to do. But they didn't do it. And how often do we try to dig ourselves out of a hole, so to speak, rather than go to the Lord first? And in the sailor's case, it wasn't so much their sin, but that they were experiencing the consequences of someone else's sin. And many of our trials aren't just, it's not just our sin or our own foolishness, but it's other people sinning against us. It, many times it's a mixture of both that God uses to bring us to repentance. But here's the interesting thing is that Sometimes in the midst of our trials and even in the midst of discipline is that we feel much safer going to the Lord in prayer and pleading for his help rather than listening to a representative of God. Whether that be a preacher or a friend or a family member or someone that's speaking on behalf of God, speaking, trying to speak God's truth and his words into our lives. And it's interesting that we're we're trying to go. We may try to go to God first, but really we're not. We're, we're we're thinking there's some other way around this, even though someone else is speaking God's clear words into our lives. But we know that they're going to tell us to do something that we don't want to do. And so we think, well, maybe I'll go to God, and maybe he'll he'll somehow just make this trial go away rather than listen to a representative of God tell me something from God's word that I need to do that I don't want to do. 
But the sailors, they eventually do what the man of God um, tells them to do. And it, it, it's interesting here. It, 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 as I'm thinking about this whole narrative, and, you know, it's God sends a storm, and, and, and that um, is almost like a chain reaction to um, other things which are designed to cause Jonah to repent. But there's also a sense that the sailors need to repent, but it's really Jonah, and we're reading this you know, from the outside looking in, from our safe perspective, and, and, and we're probably thinking, like, Jonah, like, what's wrong with you? And it made me think, you know, there's recently, there's been this, this series of, of um, Christian memes that have been floating around, the, around social media, and it, they, they usually have a picture of a well-known pastor or an author, and, and then there's, you know, the words that say, why don't you repent, bro? Like, or, bro, why don't you just repent? <laughs> like, almost like speaking to the person that is um, reluctant and stiff-necked, and everybody around knows that what needs to happen is you just need to repent. Everybody knows. And, and, and the meme is funny, but seriously, it's like, Everybody knows what's going on here. Everybody knows who's at fault. And so, bro, why don't you just repent? Just repent. And you, we can end all of this right now. <laughs> like, Just repent, please. For, for your sake, for everybody else's sake, just repent. But no, no. Jonah refuses to repent. And, and, and an interesting thing here is that because of Jonah's refusal to repent, that leads to the sailors' repentance. John Calvin, in his commentary, he writes this on this, this passage. He says, But though the Lord may involve many men in the same punishment, when he especially intends to pursue only one man, yet there is never wanting a reason why he might not call before his tribunal any one of us even such as appear the most innocent. And the Lord works wonderfully while ruling over men. It would be therefore preposterous to measure his operations by our wisdom. For God can so punish one man as to humble some at the same time, and to chastise others for their various sins, and also to try their patience. He uses flowery language, but in his essence he's saying you know god's using all these things you know he he's he's using his discipline on jonah to do double duty to not only discipline jonah but to bring the sailors to repentance because they entreated the lord but after they threw jonah into the sea it says in verse 16 then the men feared the lord exceedingly and they offered a sacrifice to the Lord and made vows. That's, that's evidence of their repentance. And I believe we will see those sailors in heaven. That God used Jonah to, and his 
his unrepentance, his, his disobedience, his rebellion to bring those sailors to repentance. Yet, Jonah remains unmoved by the sailors' fearful response to the storm, which should have convicted him. And so, the sailors were an instrument of God's discipline. They're an instrument of God's discipline in their fearful response to the storm. But second, in their appalling admonishments. We, we see this at not only do they have a fearful response, which Jonah should have had, but they confront Jonah. They have appalling admonishments towards Jonah. The, and, and the first of these is the captain's confrontation in verse 6. So the captain came and said to him, What do you mean, you sleeper? Arise, call out to your God. Perhaps the God will give a thought to us that we may not perish. It, it's like everybody else here on this ship is working. They're trying to do something to get us out of this situation. They're, they're crying out to their God. They're throwing the cargo into the sea. And here you are just sleeping. What do you mean? And who are you? What, what, what are you doing here? And sometimes God can use that in our lives. That, you know, if we're honest with ourselves, you know, we're, we're, not, we're not the best employees and we may not be the best neighbors and, and we, not, we, we may not act the best way in the community, in the marketplace. And, and I know there's been times in my life where an unbeliever has, in a sense, rebuked me. And maybe they didn't think they were doing it at the time, but their words or their actions or whatever has stopped me in my tracks. And it's caused me to contemplate. And God, God will use unbelievers to confront us. And he's doing this right here with this captain. What do you mean, you sleeper? But more than that, he uses the, the rest of the sailors as well. The, the, the captain doesn't get anywhere with Jonah. But then the sailors, they, they gather together in verse 7. They said to one another, come, let us cast lots that we may know on whose account this evil has come upon us. So they cast lots and the lot fell on Jonah. Then they said to him, tell us on whose account this evil has come upon us. What is your occupation and where do you come from? What is your country and of what people are you? <clears throat> I almost picture, you know, those scenes in the, you know, those detective movies or those police movies where they're gathered around this, the suspect and they put the light on him and they're like, where were you on such and such a date? It's like all these sailors are gathered around Jonah and they're just nailing him with questions one after the other. Tell us, who are you? And notice how Jonah, as he answers them in verse 9, how he leaves one key piece of information out of his answer. One key piece of information that would have kind of told the whole story. He says to them, I am a Hebrew and I fear the Lord, the God of heaven who made the sea and the dry land. And that is enough to make the men in verse 10 exceedingly afraid. 
And so that they say, what is this that you have done? For the men knew that he was fleeing from the presence of the Lord because he had told them. But that one key piece of information he left out. They asked him, what is your occupation? <laughs> he's not, he's, he just says, I am a Hebrew and I fear the Lord. He, he, he's too afraid to say, oh, yeah, and by the way, I am a prophet of that Lord. I was called to go proclaim a message of that Lord. Um, but know that, and they may have killed him on the spot or threw him overboard on the spot had he said that. But he leaves that, you know, that, that one little piece of information, it just, you know, conveniently leaves that out. But the fact that he tells them that he's a Hebrew and he fears the Lord, the God of heaven, who made the sea and the dry land, that just makes them just dump. What are you doing? And then they know, okay, so what shall we do to you that the sea may quiet down for us? And so it's not just... <clears throat> Because Jonah remains undeterred. He, he's still hardened in his sin. And, and so it's not just the sailor's fearful response that should have pricked his conscience and was, in essence, a discipline against him. And, and it's not just their appalling admonishments, but it's also their desperate pleas. That the, the sailor's desperate pleas should have been a form and they were a form of discipline against Jonah. They, that should have made Jonah feel about this small or more. And it's probably part of the reason why he hid in the bottom of the ship. But these unbelieving sailors are, are pleading with him. What shall we do to you that the sea may quiet down for us? But that wasn't enough. Because he, even the the sailors were somewhat hardened in their sin and they didn't listen to the man of God. But they did plea with God. They did plea with God. And eventually their repentance would lead to their faith. And they did throw Jonah into the sea. But yet, even in the sea, Jonah did not repent. And so we see that God uses first the storm as an instrument of divine discipline. Second, the sailors. And third, the sea. He uses a sea as a form of discipline. And this is somewhat reading between the lines, but we don't know exactly how much time elapsed from the time that Jonah was thrown into the sea to the time that the fish swallowed him. We don't know how much time elapsed. It, it could have been a day. It, it could have been 30 seconds. It, we don't know. It just says that he was thrown into the sea and then the Lord appointed a great fish to swallow up Jonah. But from Jonah's perspective, until he was actually swallowed by that fish, he knew that he was going into the sea and he was going to be thrown away from his his safety in the ship. And, and, and as far as he was concerned, until he was swallowed, 
he was going to be alone and adrift at sea. And so whether he was alone and adrift at sea for a day or a few days or just a few moments until that ship came, there is a sense that the sea itself was a form of discipline to Jonah. Now just the thought that, and even as he told the sailors, throw me into the sea. We don't know how far away from dry land they were. They, they could have been in the middle of the Mediterranean. We don't know. But the thought of being adrift at sea for, for anyone, even sailors, can bring up thoughts of isolation, of um, starvation, of um, hypothermia. Just the fact that I'm going to be alone here. And the vast expanse of the sea drifting and and no one's going to come for me. No one knows I'm here unless by chance someone ends up sailing close to me. If any of you have ever sailed somewhere where, you know, you can't see land, it's, it's a humbling thing. Even though you're on a ship. And, and to be on that ship in the midst of the ocean, and, and surely you would have that thought. I've been on a ship in the midst of the ocean and sailed over the ocean, and um, even though nothing happened to that ship, and it was a big, large Navy ship, and many people knew we were there, the thoughts still came into my mind. What would happen if for some reason this ship went down and I was floating on the sea. That that's, can be almost a frightening thought, even if you're on the ship. And so there is a sense that the sea was also a form of discipline to make Jonah think. And, and, and sometimes this happens in our lives, that we're... We're set apart and we're alone and we're isolated from people that we have either sinned against or they've sinned against us or we don't want to reconcile with them. And and so now we're isolated and we're alone and we're apart from these people whom we should love and have fellowship with and, and yet there's a broken relationship or there's something going on and that isolation, that aloneness is a form of discipline. It's something that should prick our conscience to reconcile, to um, restore those relationships, to um, not float adrift in this sea of loneliness. Sometimes people are lonely because of their sin. I think sometimes of of homeless people. And uh, every homeless person you see there's a story. There's a story, and it, it, it may be primarily their sin. It may be others' sins against them. But they're, in essence, alone. They may have other friends who are homeless, but you know, from what I've heard of homeless people, those friendships aren't that friendly. Sometimes God does this to us as a form of discipline. He leaves us to ourselves. He leaves us alone. And so God used the storm. He used the sailors. 
And he used the sea to discipline Jonah. But a fourth thing he used, and, and I couldn't help myself. I had to keep alliterating with the S, and I couldn't use shark, so the sea monster. <laughs> so, which we don't know. It says fish. It could have been a sea monster. It, was, it must have been a large, shit, large uh, fish um, that swallowed up Jonah. And to Jonah's perspective, to his thought, it was a sea monster. Here comes this fish, this sea monster out of nowhere. And like I said, we don't know how much time elapsed from the time that they threw him into the sea to the time that the fish swallowed him. He could have been there a while, but what, whatever happened, that swallowing must have been sudden and unexpected. I, I, I don't think Jonah was drifting there and, and then off on the horizon he sees something and slowly it comes and comes and comes. <laughs> I, I think what had happened is that, that that fish probably just came up from underneath and bam, before Jonah knew it, he was swallowed. A sudden and an unexpected swallowing. Swift discipline. <laughs> and, and sometimes you, you've heard that term before. It, what this person means, usually it, it's in, in the context of child rearing and, and a child that they need swift discipline. And, and sometimes swift discipline is the best discipline. Um, and sad to say, and, and we see this in our culture, that our justice system, our criminal system, our prison system, that discipline is not swift. It's not swift. It's not quick. It's, it, it, and because it's not swift, it doesn't have that effect. People can be in court awaiting sentencing or um, going through trials for months and even years. You know, the, the verdict can be, you know, they can even be have the sentence, but they're still waiting to go to prison. And it's not good. It's not good for them. It's not good for society. But the way God disciplines is perfect. And he perfectly used all these, these elements to discipline Jonah. But not only perfectly employing them, but providentially employing them in an order, in an order such that, that the sailors themselves come to faith. But also that, because as we see that Jonah was hardened, that each, each instrument of discipline did not have its effect. And he continued to avoid the discipline, it continued to escape it, continued to try not to think about it, and he and even harden himself and probably turn in on himself until this fish, this sea monster, comes out of nowhere and just suddenly and unexpectedly swallows him. And so then he's there in the belly of the fish. And, and we may not think about this, but <clears throat> it was dark. It was dark. He couldn't see anything. And quite possibly, I mean, 
yeah, there's those children's stories, and they, they paint a picture, and almost like Jonah's in a cave, and he's sitting on the tongue of the whale, or whatever it, it may be, but chances are, you know, because just the way an animal's, or even our own bowels and, and um, intestines work, and stomachs work, that they're kind of, they stretch, and they're kind of, so chances are, the walls of the fish were pressed up against Jonah. It could be that he almost felt enveloped. And and quite possibly, and probably, I'm sure, there was other things in there that that fish had eaten. Weeds and other fish and other things that were decomposing, stomach acids going on, and and just things which, none of which Jonah could see, but surely he could smell it. And he could touch it, and that, for sure, brought all sorts of thoughts to his mind. What, what is this? Oh, that's sharp. That, that, is, that, is that still alive there? Who knows? So there's this sudden and unexpected swallowing. There's this, this imprisonment, this dark and frightful imprisonment in the belly. But finally, I, I think what finally broke Jonah... And we'll see it next week in chapter 2 as he repents. I think what finally broke him is the futility of escape. That, you know, while he was on the the ship, and, and he may have been on the top deck when that storm came, you know, he could go down into the belly of the ship. There was a, a, a sense where he escaped the storm into the belly of the ship. And, and then even as the sailors were, their, their fearful response to the storm and, and their inquiries to him and their admonishments to him, he could even escape the sailors and the captain by turning in on himself, by stonewalling them and saying, I'm not, I'm not listening. And, and, and not even as we saw, not even telling the whole story, leaving key pieces of information out. So there's in a sense that he could escape the, the ship, or, or, or I mean the storm, rather, by going into the belly of the ship, and he could escape the sailors. And, and even being swallowed by the, the sea monster, he escaped the, the unknown and the expanse of the sea. But... Now, in the belly, he can't escape anywhere. Because even when he was floating on the water, there could have still been that possibility, well, maybe a ship will come by. Now that it's calm, maybe another ship will come by. Or, or maybe those sailors might turn by, or they, may, maybe they'll leave me you know, a plank of wood or, or a barrel or something to float on. There is still that, that possibility of escaping God's discipline. But now that he's in the belly of this sea monster, this fish, he knows that he's trapped. God has got him. God has pinned him. God has hemmed him in on every side. And there's, there's no possibility of escape whatsoever. And so God has him right where he wants him. And, and we may... Think of times in our lives where God has placed us right where he wanted us. It may have been, you know, what initially brought us to faith. 
or it may have been some trial that we were trying to escape, some sin that, that we, we did not want to talk to that person, we did not want to reconcile, we did not want to um, repent and ask for forgiveness. And God hems us in. And, and, and there may be someone here or someone you know that, that God is sending signals to you to repent from some sin you've committed or from not obeying a clear command. And he can do this in various ways. Like with Jonah, he did not use just one instrument of discipline, but he used several. And he can use his people, he can use his word, he can use the circumstances of life, he can use unbelievers to bring one of his children to repentance. But if you are truly his child, he will not let you go in sin. And that can be terrifying because we know we can't escape from him even though we try. But there's also a sense that it can be comforting because he disciplines those he loves and those who are his. And I think of, you know, I think of one of the benefits of church discipline is that it provokes everybody around the person that's being disciplined to holiness. I've never been put under church discipline, but there's been a few churches where I've been in where there's been someone has been brought up for church discipline. And most of them, I, I did not know who they were. But hearing their case, hearing their name being called, that struck me. That provoked me to holiness. That provoked me to repent from any sins that I have been harboring. And God can use that. He can use the discipline of somebody else to bring you to repentance, to discipline you. He can use unbelievers. He can use weather. He can use natural disasters. He can use, he has all sorts of tools in his tool chest, so to speak. And so the lesson for us is to repent. Is to repent and to live a life of repentance. And that's, that's a key indicator of your salvation. Of that, that's a, a key proof of assurance of eternal life is that you live a life of repentance. That your soul, your heart, your conscience is pricked by others being disciplined, by God's word, that you have a healthy conscience that feels. It's not hardened by sin. It's not seared by sin. It feels those pricks of the Holy Spirit. And as I heard from my previous pastor and several other pastors, that you know, they would come down after preaching a message and, and, and someone would approach them and they, they would say, were you preaching to me? Was, was that to me? <laughs> and some of them who are a, a little bit more clever, they would say, yes. <laughs> but, but not intentionally. The Holy Spirit uses that. 
He uses the words, and a preacher may not be directing his words towards anybody. And I, I certainly don't direct my words towards anybody, but the Holy Spirit, in, in a sense, um, he, he, he takes those words and he hits his mark. And, and sometimes it may not even be the verse. It may not even be the main point. It may be an illustration that will stick in your heart and will haunt you. Until we repent. But God will not leave us alone. And he will chase after us. Because he is concerned about our holiness. Just as we are concerned who have children. About the fact that they should be good and holy. And hopefully come to faith someday. And God cares for us. And he cares enough to discipline us. Heavenly Father we thank you for this account of your discipline and the prophet Jonah and how you employed several means to bring him to repentance. And as we look at his disobedience, we can look down on him. And there's so many extremes in this book. His extreme calling and yet his extreme disobedience and your extreme discipline. But there is a silver lining in that dark cloud in the fact that you are merciful and gracious and slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. You're patient with us. And yet, you love us enough to discipline us and to confront us in our sin and, and not to let us remain in sin, but to bring us to repentance that we would turn back from our sin and strive towards holiness to be like Christ. And so, Lord, we pray that you would help us in those regards. And we even pray that we may be disciplined first and foremost from your word and from the preaching of your word and may respond rightly towards that discipline before we are confronted with discipline from other people. Lord, we thank you for your grace and mercy. Please be with us this week. Give us the strength and the energy and the will to live in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have called us. And we pray that you would be glorified in and through us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.